get what you want, you don't want it. If I gave you the moon, you'd grow tired of it soon. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Momus Report podcast. My name is Emmett Okuna. Now, if you've been listening to the show in the past, you may have noticed that the type of content I tend to focus on varies quite widely, and that's why I set up the Momus Report. I am interested in things which would be considered high culture. I'm also interested in things that could be considered low culture. And my whole point is, there's no difference. I enjoy it. You should enjoy it. If you enjoy your thing, there's nothing wrong with that. Why put a label on it? So it's all about this show and this website is all about trying to promote things that are good. <laughs> Let's not get bound up with ideas of are they proper or not. And that's kind of what I want to talk about with our guest, Dr. Matt Finch, today, who has been involved in a number of really interesting projects, notably involving zombies that are actually quite educational. And now, if that strikes your fancy, I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. Uh, zombies as pedagogical tool. That's a interesting hook for folks, Matt. What do you, what do you think? Um, I think it's, a, it's an unusual way in. And um, <laughs> we're just at the peak of the kind of zombie craze, in a way, in comics and movies. It's probably just about to fade away. So it's just been the perfect moment to kind of reap the reward of that pop cultural mania. Um, so what I've been doing in Australia and New Zealand particularly is running a series of live action events where we've had zombies basically besiege kids and teens in library settings. So they've actually had to physically kind of barricade themselves in rooms and defend themselves from either performers or fellow teenagers dressed up as zombies, behaving as zombies and having to sort of think on their feet about survival situations and use those educational resources, the books in the library, those kind of materials, to think what they would do come the zompocalypse. And like, how do you find it when, when you're actually dealing with a group of students or a group of children like this, and you're, you present them with this fantastical situation, are they dismissive or are they immediately engaged? Is it a case that they they actually get into it because they're familiar with the idea of the zombie attack, or are they just... Just taken aback by it all. How how do you find it goes? Well, the truth is, it's, it's developed over time. The very the very first time I did this, I assumed that they would be immediately gripped. And even though I've got quite a lot of experience working with kids and teens in tough neighbourhoods, um, I was shocked by how sceptical they were. Frankly, so um, <laughs> very first one I ran uh, was in a place called Tullamore in rural New South Wales. And basically, the kids turned up at midday in their town library to find it completely deserted and vandalized. The shelves had been knocked to the ground. There were bloody handprints on the walls. <laughs> Someone had chalked, keep out, save yourselves on the front <laughs> of the building. And I thought they would be gripped by this, by this desolate sight. Mm. And they came inside and they were unmoved. They were like, what is this? Is this a murder mystery workshop? Did somebody fake vandalize the library? Was this, <laughs> are we supposed to solve some crime or something? And... I was kind of gobsmacked, but of course the last laugh was uh, was on them because I just had to wait about 10 minutes. And as they were beginning to get increasingly bored and sarcastic, they heard this low moan coming from down the high street. And then about 15 zombies began shambling towards the building and all hell broke loose. Um, <laughs> there's basically there's this wonderful tipping point where there's a degree of suspension of disbelief because mm. they can't quite believe this activity is really happening. But at the same time, kids are so familiar with pop culture and the mass media these days that yep. it's like they immediately know the rules. First of all, nobody thinks that the zombies have really risen. So there's, there's already a notion that we're in a kind of play activity, which keeps mm. things kind of safe and fun. 
But also, um, the very first time I did this, it was with a very mixed age range from eight years old to 18, which sounds challenging, but it was actually perfect because the eight-year-olds were really into it, but yeah. the 18-year-olds the kind of kept them calm because the 18-year-olds were just that little bit more skeptical. Yeah. But the balancing side of that was that the passion and the excitement of the eight-year-olds kind of fired up the older children, and especially the ones who were virtually adults. So you get this great mixture of you have them in mixed age groups and there are eight year olds absolutely freaking out because there are zombies hammering on the windows of the library just about half a meter away. And mm. at the same time, there are these 18 year olds going, well, well, I've seen zombie land. You know, we're going to make up some rules for how to survive this situation. Um, and sort of by the back door, they're picking up all these opportunities to make use of the library or the setting that they're in. Yeah. And you know, we're ticking a few education boxes along the way. Brilliant, brilliant. I actually saw um, the interview that you, I think you had an event in Auckland, yeah. and I was really struck by something that the librarian said, which is that we have to make kids interested, we have to try and come up with things that kids think are cool, not what we tell them is cool, that they actually think is cool, and that well, they will then see the library as a space that they can become more engaged in. Because I, mean, I, I remember, I, maybe you do too, when I was a young person, uh, libraries were a place where you went to be quiet. Yeah. Whereas what I've really been struck by in recent years is that you know, there's no more of an emphasis now on libraries as a public space. Library is somewhere where there are storytelling sessions with young children and where you can play games and where you can chat to your friends and do your homework and all the rest of it so the noise level is no longer an issue but also to actually make them a place that kids want to go to that's Definitely. the challenge yeah and in fact there's actually two elements to what you're saying there um the first one is about the role of the library that there's this there's this great misunderstanding which comes from the the history of libraries as book repositories mm. um because at the moment, I mean, I work with museums and charities and TV companies and publishers and all kinds of institutions, but currently I'm doing a lot of library gigs. Um, I happened to read the United Nations basic mission statement for a public library. And it's really interesting because it doesn't use the word book once. Um, <laughs> it mentions reading, but the UN's parameters for the sort of bare minimum for a public library, they also include cultural heritage, um, opportunities for self-directed learning, stimulating imagination and creativity it's really you know the book happens to be the medium historically and you know while people are arguing about stuff on shelves the notion of the library it's almost like the internet made flesh it's supposed to be this this room that you step into and there are people there who are kind of a conduit to all of our culture and all of our knowledge um, you know, the whole notion of a public library, it's insanely radical, like that there should be a free point of access to everything our society knows and dreams. No matter, you know, if you're a homeless guy wandering off the street and you stink of booze, you're allowed in. You know, if you're a PhD and you need a really specific resource, then they'll order it in for you. It's this incredibly radical notion. Um, and I, it fascinates me. And it's almost got nothing to do with the technology. You know, it doesn't matter if it's Gutenberg and the printing press or it's e-readers or tablet computers. And aside from that, aside from the ideas that libraries have got to be attractive spaces um, for the whole pu general public to use, it's also this notion of reaching out to kids. And of course, more than anyone else in society, kids are absolutely marinated in pop culture, you know, toys, Saturday morning cartoons. Um, and they take ownership of that. Like, I mean, our generation probably remember playing things like Transformers in the playground. And then more recently, it'll have been stuff like Ben 10 um, or, you know, Iron Man, I guess, at the moment with the movies out. 
And kids are actually taking ownership of pop culture. Like if you watch kids play in a playground, they make their own stories using the stuff they're watching on TV and reading in comics. Uh, and so, of course, we have to reach out to them using their culture. It's true. And actually, you reminded me of something else. There could be elements of this that are, were, have been evolving over a number of years now, decades even, because yeah, you're, you're an Englishman, Matt. You know, oh, yeah. doc, you know Doctor Who. You know, Doctor Who's a fine, long-running show. Truly. Um, one thing that occurs to me now is that when you watch Doctor Who, there's this really large, expansive mythology behind it, and there's all this, there's this history to it, and there's all these rules as what the Doctor can or cannot do, and people get really into it, and people cosplay as the Doctor, and they go to all these events dressed as the Doctor or the Doctor's companions. Yeah. So it's got this, it's a pop culture icon right now. But when an earthly child, which I think it was the first Doctor Who episode, aired, yeah. it was meant as an educational program. Yes, it was meant, to, you know, it was meant for kids. And what happened was, the idea was that the Doctor would visit a historical period, and you would learn about that period. Yes, that was the premise. Absolutely right. There's, in fact, there's been an absolutely wonderful um, blog recently. To my, to my shame, I can't think who wrote it just at this oh, moment. No. <laughs> but there's been an incredible online review of a really early Doctor Who episode called The Reign of Terror. It was a story... Yes, the French Revolution, the, the Robespierre episode, yes. That's right. And um, what this guy points out is that when you watch the, the original Reign of Terror serial, they assume that the audience is going to know about Robespierre and know about the, the Reign of Terror. And that was because of the kind of the things that were in the school curriculum at the time. And the, the blogger makes this wry aside of saying, well, actually now the, the proportion of the, the population who do know about the Reign of Terror, most of them are probably just Doctor Who fans who remember the episode because it's not taught on the British curriculum anymore. Um, so there's this unusual position where our memories of pop culture and our memories of history kind of overlap and intersect. Um, I'm really fascinated by that, that it's not about some didactic thing. It's not about handing on the facts of the past necessarily. Um, but just using those thinking skills and being acquainted with any kind of narrative. Um, Sarah Waters, uh, who wrote Tipping the Velvet and Fingersmith, mm. um, you know, writes these incredible historical meditations, largely on lesbianism, and has said in interviews, you know, I couldn't write about contemporary lesbian culture, but I can write about the past. And as an adolescent, she was obsessed with Doctor Who and collected Doctor Who annuals and read those books. And I'm fascinated by the idea that that kind of reading has shaped her literature as an adult. Yeah, well, once again, it's engaged her intellectually because yeah. they are talking about these ideas and they're talking about these. I think another episode that I really was taken by, once again, early Doctor Who was the Aztecs. And, yes. and once again, as you say, there, there was this assumption on the part of the showrunners that the audience knows all these things they're referring to. And Yeah, and you know, maybe I, it, it's difficult to really sort of generalize about the series today but you know the fact that now the references are to nixon or the moon landings in the the most you know the most recent matt smith series um or the the russian submarine episode cold war that's just been on uh, with the ice warriors trapped on the russian submarine and there were these little nods to 1980s pop culture mm. you know as the generation that grew up with the music of ultravox becomes parents themselves there's a different kind of continuity. It's still about the past. It's still about the historical record. Mm. But now we're, we're talking about, um, you know, about Glasnost and the Cold War and that kind of history um, in a way that was, that was done in perhaps a more sort of finger-wagging way in the 60s. You know, now you will learn about this, this historical society. <laughs> well, this is it. This is, this is, I'm glad you mentioned that, actually, because 
one thing I wanted to talk about was, are you, do you find, dealing with these kids and, and dealing with the schools and libraries that you've interacted with, do you find you're dealing with a generation of young adults, parents, teachers, who are themselves nerds, and maybe that's made your kind of uh, event more accessible? It's something that they're maybe a little more open to, whereas in previous years they would have been frowned upon as a distraction or a, an indulgence. How do you find it tonight? Is it do people see the educational possibilities of pop culture a little more now than they would have before? I think so. I think it. I think it's it's still different in a way from kind of geekiness and nerdiness. That sort of that real passion that gets you into the kind of the backstory of a show and knowing all the details. It's more just the fact that pop culture has so thoroughly permeated every part of our lives, especially now with social media. The fact that through our phones. Um, you know, through all of our technology, we're always absorbing little bits of kind of news, gossip, fiction, fantasy, fan fiction, pieces of art and imagery. We can't really get away from pop culture, but we also interact with it in a different way. It's not just like it's being transmitted at us. Like, this is the film you will consume. This is your Saturday morning cartoon. Mm. Um, there's more of an opportunity to speak back to the to the broadcasters to the creators of mainstream um, pop culture and that's what we're trying to do in a lot of the activities that I run so for example in Auckland the the project was this that um in the center of Auckland there was an interactive theater experience where you could pay 30 or 40 New Zealand dollars and you would you would basically experience a zombie siege it was as if there was a scenario where new zealand had been overrun by the zombie apocalypse you were in the last military outpost you were civilians who'd been rescued and you were holding out hoping for rescue and we knew that that kids in south auckland which is one of the more deprived parts of the city they weren't going to even come to the city center let alone have 30 or 40 dollars to spend for a, for this evening of interactive role play so mm. we made it happen in the library and what was really exciting was to see it wasn't so much the things we'd set up where it was like, now you can use some library books to um, to plan your escape. Like we gave them disaster survival manuals. We gave them maps of their district to work out how to escape. The best bits were when they were having to think on their feet because there were actually zombies at the door hammering away with their fists. Uh, a couple of survivors snuck in through the zombie horde and the kids had to establish a rule of thumb for determining if people were infected. And they didn't know if it was a virus transmitted by a bite, if it was um, transmitted through the air. And they were thinking, well, we can't really do a medical test. Uh, they decided that, you know, zombies, they, they didn't seem to be able to speak. They seemed to have poor motor function. There was clearly um, some kind of brain damage element. So they were making people sing and they were making people read aloud from books. And it, it was really <laughs> fascinating watching them on their feet. And that was stuff that we couldn't have planned beforehand. It wasn't a learning objective, but mm. that's value to this kind of immersive play having to think like a character in something like the walking dead mm. um in this kind of live scenario where the pressure is on and you feel like you're in the drama um i think that's hugely valuable and hugely engaging mm. Mm. and as you say i mean once again it's a case of the kids take ownership of the situation and then they they do learn something as you say they were hitting educational points there but they were the ones controlling the situation as it was happening to them yeah, absolutely. And again, this this comes back to why libraries are particularly exciting. And it really frustrates me that libraries get a really poor press at the moment, you know, as if yeah. they're going to be replaced by the Internet, you know, as if they're just places for books on shelves. You know, the way schooling has gone, especially in the English speaking world, it's about training people to pass tests. It's about yeah. getting qualifications, which is all well and good. 
but it's it's not something that really gets you passionate. There's not many people who get really excited about collecting A grades. Um, you know, when you really fall for a subject, when you feel that romance of learning, that's a wonderful thing. And that's what libraries are for. Libraries don't have to make you pass an exam. So if you step through the doors of a library, the idea is you learn what you want on your own terms. Um, so when this Auckland event started, I was a bit frustrated because a couple of the teenagers had brought guitars with them. Hmm. I was kind of grinding my teeth, sort of silently thinking they're going to keep playing these damn guitars when we're trying to do the activity. And they would be strumming along. But then we realized, first of all, they were playing guitars when they were making the, the possible zombies sing. And that was pretty cool. But then we hit on the idea that maybe the guitars could be used to lure the zombies. Um, they were basically holed up in a glass walled meeting room, which looked over quite a large library. So when the zombies moved away from the meeting room, we sent out the two kids, two kids with guitars and they just played a few chords to see if they could attract the zombies to different parts of the library. <laughs> and of course, when the li when the zombies noticed them, they sort of set off on this mad howling charge towards the kids with the guitars who absolutely freaked out, hammered their way towards our door. And then we allowed the teenagers to have control of the door and the door keys. So there were two guys with guitars banging on the window saying, let us in, let us in. And another guy fumbling with the keys and the zombies getting closer and closer. <laughs> and it's really pushing that line of how close can you get to actually stepping inside the world of the movie um, in a way that actually lets you learn and grow on your own terms, if that doesn't sound too sappy. Yeah, no, not at all. I understand what you mean. I think um, a recent example for me was I was playing a The Walking Dead uh, video game, right? which was a point-and-click uh, adventure. And sure. it was very interactive, and it was very interesting because unlike most games, you couldn't just run around willy-nilly. You needed to go in specific directions, go to specific places. Yeah. But it was heavily focused on choice yes. and the consequences of your choices. And I thought it was brilliantly written, a uh, great story. I actually thought it was superior to the comic or the television show, in fact. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it really, it, because it put it back on me, okay, you as the survivor now have to deal with the consequences of your actions. And I thought it was very interesting as a form of gameplay you are sort of bringing back an element or i've seen something the fact that you're reinvestigating the choose your own adventure type scenario which i remember that was big in the 80s as well the little choose your own adventure books as a form of gameplay for these kids is that something maybe you'd like to speak to as well like how does that how do you include that in your well projects the the wonderful thing for me as a as an outsider who comes into institutions and and looks at exciting ways of engaging especially children and young people but actually adults as well is you look at the the skills within the organization and sometimes people have these hidden talents waiting to flower so i've come to auckland libraries and it was very much about kind of stirring things up and looking at new ways of engaging kids i mean some people were pretty shocked and horrified when the when the zombie project got underway and my very first action in the job was to buy $500 worth of Nerf guns, which really did make a few librarians go pale. But uh, I work with an incredible um, librarian with a strong digital background called Danielle Carter, who's also a massive fan, um, a mother of two. And um, she was working on a choose-your-own-adventure using Twine, which is a piece of free software. Mm. And originally we had the idea that kids would be creating their own. And therefore, if we were going to run some choose your own adventure workshops for kids to write their own, we should probably write one as a trial or a pilot. 
And we hit on the notion that after the kids had had the live action zombie experience, the adventure could continue in the virtual world. Like really that we could blend lived experience, the pop cultural world of zombies, and this digital element of choose your own adventure. You know, I'd love for Auckland libraries to have the budget to have, you know, a point and click adventure or something more immersive. But of course, we are in the literacy business. So yep. the idea of a 16,000 word interactive story um, was absolutely fascinating for me. And Danielle's written this absolutely incredible game, which is it's just about to be launched, actually, um, probably the day after I give this interview. It'll it'll be officially online and available to the public. Um, and really, yeah, what excited me about that as well is, um, like I said, pop culture is really something that's throughout our society now and it's not just that kind of stereotypical you know uh, sort of teenage boy demographic that sometimes things like this get associated with so danielle's a mother of two she's written this incredibly um, spooky zombie game but she has this adult awareness of consequences which really plays into the way she's designed the game um basically what happens right at the beginning you're at a fun fair you're a teenager at a fun fair with your little sister and she's bitten by a zombie in the outbreak so the whole game is about protecting the sister, trying to avoid her turning on you and trying to see if there's any hope of rescue or cure for her. Hmm. So um, unlike perhaps games that are very much more, um, you know, I'm thinking of stuff like Call of Duty or the things that can yep. be very sort of, you know, blaze away at the enemy. This is entirely a narrative um, based around consequences and responsibility. Um, so if you want to have all that kind of good and wholesome stuff it's there but thankfully beneath a wonderful veneer of blood and gore and gunplay <laughs> yeah no i i recently because i'm well behind the pack in terms of gaming i uh, only recently finished bioshock right uh, which i think was just last week actually and i well, was blown away by that because yes it uses the mechanisms of as you say the call of duty or just basic generic shoot 'em up game where you're running around killing splicers who could be your zombies or could be enemy terrorists or whatever the game in question is. But the entire narrative of the game was based around the ideals of free market capitalism versus the reality of capitalism or black market type of uh, reality. And what happens when these things confront each other? And I thought it was a Really, really interesting. Very funny play on the theories of Ayn Rand. I never imagined I'd be playing a computer game which had such depth in terms of what it was trying to say to me. And sure. on, on, on top of all of that, there was the fact that you have responsibility for these little, the little sisters. The little sisters, which are these girls who uh, have been converted into um, producers of this substance called Adam. And you can either protect them or you can harvest them, in which case you are, you are attacking them. And you are given the choice. And because I'm a good little boy, I, I went for protect them. Um, but I thought that it actually played that. It, it left it open to you what choice you'd make. Entirely up to you. But then it changed the notion of the gameplay entirely once you made that choice. And it was just a brilliant experience. And at the end of it, that felt like a genuine story I'd just been a part of. A really thrilling narrative uh, with all this philosophical depth and all this emotional depth and just uh, really clever writing. So we're living in an age now where pop culture is being put to, I think, quite interesting uses. It's not just throwaway. It's not just an indulgence. It is actually, we're moving towards maybe a more everyday acceptance of pop culture, as you say, but at the same time, quite clever usage of pop culture. 
Absolutely. I think people are using pop culture as a tool to think through problems, to decide what they what they feel about life. I mean, politically um, and perhaps even philosophically as well. And I think that's really important. And I always I mean, in my mind, I'm always kind of imagining what people might say, criticizing these kind of projects we're putting forward because we are running pilots, always trying to be daring and push the boundaries. And I could almost imagine a kind of straw man saying, well, why would a library need to be designing computer games? I mean, that sounds pretty crazy. But mm. of course, you know, however rich something like like Mass Effect or Bioshock gets, it is basically somebody who's creating an entertainment package in order to make money. And again, it comes back to this notion of, say, something like a library is an entirely public space, um, usually free to use their services at the, at the point of contact. And it's somewhere where you do things on your own terms. So, you know, in this example, library staff had created a game which ties into an educational event that the teenagers had experienced, but it was available for people who hadn't been there on the day as well. And also it's about empowering those teens not only to play something that's actually set in their home city and related to experiences that some of their peers will have had in the library, at least mm-hmm. gaming experiences, but also the idea that somebody will do it and think, hey, I can do that. You know, if a few kids decide to make their own interactive games using a using a piece of free software like Twine now, say at age of 12 or 13, that's setting them on the path to who knows what creative exploits later in life. Oh, it's true. I mean, if you look at the previous two generations of game developers, a lot of them are kids who grew up with, or they were kids, who grew up with BASIC and C++ and, you know, going to the back of the computer magazine and taking the page of code and then designing their own text game. You know, that was their start in game development. And then now they're working on these AAA titles. Uh, it's something you see a lot in interviews that, oh, yes, I, I was into those choose-your-own-adventure type text games. And yeah. then that, 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 exactly, I mean, that that's your first step to... A, a very fruitful career path, perhaps. Yeah, well, one hopes. And, you know, I, I don't want to overstate how radical it is to do these things, but I definitely think there's a there's a change there that we we needn't be kind of simply consumers of the mass media and pop culture. It's not just like we sit there and the goggle box, box beams stories straight into us anymore. I mean, I love those subversive elements of parody of um, even things like Tumblr and GIFs and the things that go around on Facebook. You know, the idea that individual people will look at a piece of pop culture and tweak it so that it's a message Mm. that that reflects their own beliefs um, and thoughts. That seems incredibly important to me and something that's that's one of the most wonderful gifts of the digital age. Yeah, I think my favorite Twitter account is the... um Kim Kierkegaardian. Yes. Oh, wonderful. Which is, you know, Kierkegaard and Kim Kardashian merged, and it's just, it's, it's a thing of beauty. <laughs> it's fantastic. Philosophical death meets utter shallowness. <laughs> it's true. In fact, um, I'm really glad you brought that up because, although I'm not ever quite sure where I want to go with this, um, Kierkegaard particularly is yes. a, a philosopher who kind of troubles and intrigues me that he's somebody who I've never really got to grips with his his work properly in terms of sitting down and getting through the various tomes but the fact that he wrote under so many different aliases um, Mm. particularly fascinates me in terms of what that means for the 21st century and people who are discussing things online Um, and also that sort of existential element to his work um, I just think it really resonates with pop culture Um, when you start thinking too hard about things uh, (laughs) and uh, 
I remember, I remember trying to read some Kierkegaard and there was this notion of kind of the, the inexorable quality of life, you know, that if it, your existence will surely come to an end. And when you can see death looming, there's nothing to be done about it anymore. And I was reading that one evening, having just watched a 1970s sci-fi film called Star Crash, uh, which you may or may not be aware of. It's a, an Italian production from the same guy who directed Contamination. Okay. Another video nasty. Yeah. Uh, at the very end of it, um, Christopher Plummer, who is the emperor of the universe, is the he's the subject of an assassination attempt by a kind of Darth Vader pastiche who um, he sort of launches a sort of atomic mega bomb that's going to destroy the universe. And it crash lands in front of Christopher Plummer's throne. And really, the writers have left themselves no way out. And Christopher Plummer simply gets off his throne and he says, uh, Imperial battleship, reverse the flow of time. <laughs> it takes back the act of the uh, of the bomb being launched and this this kind of ridiculous deus ex machina happy ending comes but i quite like the idea that we live in this universe where you can sort of connect together this kind of kierkegaardian take on our fate and destiny and at the same time be watching this really trashy italian sci-fi and somehow it all resonates you know it, it all really does link together now um and part of what we're trying to do with these libraries is just stimulate that kind of geekiness in young people, you know, un making unusual connections. I, um, I, I will top that. I, uh, I had the unfortunate experience of watching, I think it was the Chronicles of Riddick, oh, which yeah. is Go the on. sequel to Pitch Black. And the villain <laughs> in the Chronicles of Riddick, you know, he, he has gone beyond space. So he's gone to the, he's a necromonger. He's called a necromonger, and he's nice. gone to some underspace, and he's come back. So he seems to be able to travel along his own timeline, and he seems to have uh, come back with this understanding of death, or yeah. this understanding of what lies beyond death. And now he's enslaving all the peoples of the world by turning him into necromongers uh, like himself. Right. So they're not they're not zombies, but they they certainly seem to have gone beyond mortality in some way. Sure. And uh, I was watching this, and I started making notes, and I was thinking, okay, so he he illustrates the finer points of Martin Heidegger's being towards death, <laughs> in that you know he has comported himself towards death, and now he has insight into his own life, and he's he's spreading that through his legions, and I was like, oh yeah, it's very good, and <laughs> you know, once again, like we we live in an age where the barriers between uh, these higher learning institutions and academic thought and playfulness yeah. are not uh, are not as not as firm. They're quite permeable. You have academic papers on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. You have yeah. uh, people in Oxford dis uh, discussing Neil Gaiman's The Sandman as an example of the Byronic hero. Uh, we we have this really interesting new area of discussion where we can take these hallowed ideas and then try and make them interesting by marrying them with pop culture. And I think that there's nothing wrong with that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And it can lead you to some very interesting areas. Surely. And something that's interesting there is just the fact you made that reference to Heidegger and then, <laughs> you know, talking before about Kierkegaard and both of those examples um, we were talking about made reference to death. And one of the things I thought about a lot is I, I spent a little time working in Peru um, with schools out there with people, uh, you know, the children and young people who had vastly more uncomfortable lives, even than yeah. even than teens in kind of tough neighborhoods in South Auckland. You know, if you're living in the developed world, you have a pretty comfortable life often. I mean, yep. not everyone. Um, 
but one of the things that interested me still about this this zombie thing, and I mean, I'm I'm not like a guy who goes home and watches zombie movies particularly. They're just a means to an end educationally. Um, but they are a way of speaking about death in a very modern sense. And in amid all the excitement and play, the thing that gives them the thrill, just that real hint of skin crawling still, is it's this notion of a confrontation with death, with something that can't be got around through pop culture or material wealth. Mm. Um, and just a way of slightly addressing that um, through play, you know, not going into anything that's too dark or disturbing, but there's there's something about having those moments. There was one great moment in our Auckland activity where we had a, a police officer. We had we were very lucky. We had four community police officers from the neighborhood join in the event. So there was this great moment where a, a massive uh, a massive police officer, one of the sergeants, sort of barged his way through the zombie horde got through the doors and sat down to tell the kids that rescue was coming, that uh, the emergency services had made their way through the zombie apocalypse that was supposed to be happening outside of the library. And they talked to him for about 10 minutes. And then finally, one of them noticed that we'd actually put a fake wound on his arm. Oh, and no. the kids kind of freaked out a bit. And they're like, what happened? He said, oh, I don't know. One of them must have scratched me or bitten me as I, as I came through the door. <laughs> and of course, the kids all got through a massive panic. And, uh, you know, they said, well, we, we think that people have the zombie virus probably can't sing. And he said, well, I don't sing anyway. I'm a terrible singer. So they made this guy read from a book and he just started to stutter and tremble and have problems with his words. And so the kids had to have this debate about, do we just throw him back to the horde? Do we yeah. restrain him? Do we wait if there's hope of a cure? Um, and having these real life or death conversations in a fantasy setting where it's safe, where it's playful but actually starting to think quite seriously about, you know, it's like that, that old thing of the balloon argument, you know, who do you throw out of the hot air balloon to keep it afloat? Um, real notions about sacrifice and responsibility and if we have a duty of care to people who are in that situation. Uh, and the wonderful thing was after a little bit of this stuff, before it got too kind of worthy, um, this very brave police officer who's clearly been in some tough situations in his time, I gave him the nod discreetly as the head of the workshop he went full zombie, came out of his chair roaring. The teenagers piled on him, knocked him to the ground. He ended up restrained with his own cuffs, which was absolutely <laughs> glorious. Uh, so we had a kind of frothing, growling police officer on the floor of the library with tables <laughs> up against the doors, barricading out the rest of the zombie horde. And these teenagers kind of panting, like wiping the sweat from their brows, but having had a sort of philosophical discussion about what you do with a bite victim. Um, and it was just wonderful. You know, it was that perfect marriage of pop culture, physical activity and a bit of higher order thinking. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. Well, if people are interested to learn more about you, um, your website is it's Books Adventures, isn't it? Uh, yes, uh, Books Adventures is where people find me on Twitter. Um, to be honest, if you if you Google my name, Matthew Finch, that takes you pretty much straight away to my site. Um, where there's the, the latest news, uh, occasional rants about libraries and education, but also lots of pop culture and uh, wondrous zombiness. Brilliant stuff. Well, l listen, uh, Matt, you're a man after my own heart. I think you're doing some fine work. And uh, always, always happy to see more talk of zombies, but I'm particularly interested in maybe more imaginative use of zombies, and that's certainly what you're delivering. So, uh, yeah, have I have to say, just uh, just uh, just this afternoon, I was talking to some Australian librarians, and you know, the next thing might even be ninjas. Ooh, yes. <laughs> we're we're not afraid of straying beyond the zombies into into other genres. Brace yourself. <laughs> Brilliant stuff.
<laughs> All right, folks. Um, that was that was Doctor Matt talking about zombies, libraries, and Kierkegaard. And uh, I hope you had a lot of fun. Uh, as always, you can drop me a line on Twitter, e m m e t o c underscore, and you can check out the show on iTunes and download previous episodes. Thanks for listening. All the best.